0: This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp helps businesses grow. If you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business, MailChimp makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, and no credit card required. For more sophisticated marketers, pro features like multivariate testing offer the same power you'd expect in an enterprise marketing platform in an intuitive, easy to use interface. Learn more at MailChimp.com. This episode is also brought to you by Media Temple. Since 1998, Media Temple's managed hosting solutions have been the choice for designers, developers, and creative professionals worldwide. Media Temple, hosting for people with more important things to worry about. Hey everybody, welcome to the Creative Mornings Podcast. This is Matt, and on this week's episode, we'll be hearing from a pioneer for women's rights and the self-proclaimed queen of weird, Aralyn Hughes. Aralyn spoke in Austin, Texas, last October of 2015, when the Creative Mornings global theme was shock. And what you're going to get is a woman on the brink of 70, taking you through the different phases of her incredible life and how she broke free from the norms of her generation. She was so nice to speak to on the phone, and I even got to play the part of tech support as we installed Skype on her computer, a moment that Arlen was very kind to let me share with you. What type of computer are you on? I'm on a Mac. Okay, so you uh, see, do you see where it says, it get Skype for Mac? It's...
1: Skype for Mac.
0: Right under, you're in, you're in? You hit... Yes,
1: yes, I see it, I see it.
0: Okay, so get Skype for Mac. S- Skype
1: for Mac, okay. Okay, I'm hitting the button. Oh, I tell you, it gives me something, it gives me a download at the bottom. Opening Skype, okay, now I've got it. Oh, perfect. And it's got the Skype Equals Applications. And okay. I don't know what that means to do. Does it say
0: Skype Equals or Skype and an arrow? Arrow, arrow. Okay, so click on the, the uh, Skype logo. Okay. And then drag it into the Applications folder. Skype into the,
1: okay, I got it. Done. Okay. okay. Okay, so um, now I see Skype, and I'm going to click on it. Okay. Um, are you sure you want to open it? Yes, I want to open it. Okay, now it's making some racket.
0: Oh, there it is. I hear it. Find
1: your Facebook friends on Skype. Um, I see contacts up on the left. <clears throat> oh, I see. What you as a missed call?
0: Yep, there I am. Call
1: no answer. Call no answer. Type a message here.
0: Okay. Type type hello in there for me. Um
1: in the message box, okay? Let's see. Hello,
0: okay. Oh, bye. I got it. Okay. All right, I'm going to I'm going to hang up and I'm going to call you back on Skype.
1: Okay,
0: bye. Bye. Hello. Are we there? Yes, yes we are.
2: All right.
0: All right. Thank you so much for Dealing with that.
2: Well, thanks for your patience with me.
0: It was no problem at all. You did great.
2: <laughs> but I mean, I think it, you know it's an important thing because when you're, you know, I'm going to be 70 this year, my computer skills by the standards of my peers are like, everybody says, oh, ask Carolyn; She knows everything about the computer. She can do anything. And they all think I'm a genius, but you know, I can just do what I know how to do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
2: Because I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and FaceTime doesn't mean I'm a genius, you know? It just means <laughs> right. I kind of got those down.
0: Well, you took instructions very well, and I know from experience that that could have gone a lot worse.
2: Well, I have learned to do that pretty well <laughs> <laughs> over time I've needed to. I've needed to. So I've, I've become very submissive when there's someone who has, uh, has control or is trying to help me with my computer. It's like, whatever you say, I will do. My personality mostly is more dominant and high voltage. And, um, you know, I always like to be the one t- teaching, talking, controlling, having something to say. So,
0: well, speaking to that high voltage personality and that you'll be 70 this year, I just want to say after hearing your lecture, it's really refreshing to hear someone, not just a woman, but anyone of your age and experience speaking so openly.
2: Well, I, I believe so, too, and I, I like to talk about the things that are um, that are hard conversations. I like to talk about sexuality. I like to talk about death. I like to talk about fear. Uh, I like to talk about uh, relationships that don't work because everybody has them and everybody wants to talk about them, but they either don't know how or they're afraid or they're they, feel like that they'll be judged by whatever they say. And so by my being open and honest and authentic about my experiences, it makes them freer to do so with theirs, I hope.
0: Well, I think that goes without saying, judging by the mark you've left on Austin. And so how did the Creative Mornings connection happen for you?
2: Well, since I pretty much decided when I was 60 that the rest of my life would be dedicated to creativity and that I would spend each and every day and each and every project and each and every experience, travel, whatever, in the, in the mode of art and creativity. So when I saw Creative Mornings, I don't know how I kind of crossed it or someone mentioned it, and I went to see, to see what it was about, and I thought, I got to go. So I went to Creative Mornings, and the first time I was there, I went up to the uh, the person who puts it together, Ben Toma, and I said, Ben, this is just absolutely fabulous. Uh, I just am so pleased that I knew about this and that I came. And there was a millennial girl who interjected right then and said, Ben, this woman needs to talk to our group. You've got to have her talk. And so I said, I would be willing to talk if you uh, ever have a space for me. And it wasn't long after that that he and I got together and the shock topic came up. It was a fit for me and away we went. And I attend now every meeting that I can make it to. It's a not miss thing for me now.
0: And there's really no better segue than to say that this is a not miss lecture. So stick around for a little bit more from our chat later on. And enjoy getting to know the wonderful Erilyn Hughes right now from Creative Mornings Austin in 2015.
2: Sex, drugs, rock and roll. I grew up in the 60s and it was shocking. We were the baby boomer generation born from 1946 to 1964, and we're now in the age range of 51 to 69. We created the largest cultural revolution the world has ever seen, and I think we're doing it again in our 60s, because boomers today are the fastest-growing, the wealthiest, the boldest, the most ambitious, the most difficult and demanding, the most health-conscious, most obsessed with experience and service, the most female, and the fastest-growing segment on Facebook, And. We vie with all of you millennials as to who's the most self-absorbed and narcissistic. (laughs) In the next 20 years, you will witness the loss of my generation. Your parents, your grandparents will die. And you will be shocked if you haven't been already. And I would like to think that you're going to miss us. I was born after World War II, and I grew up in the '50s in a small town on uh, Route 66 in Oklahoma. I called it a peek and plum town. Peek around the corner, and you're plum out of town. <laughs> after World War II, what people wanted was affluence, social status, and technology for their cars and for their kitchens. They got it all right, and they got it in spades at a faster pace than they ever dreamed possible. They had money. They had leisure time, and they were happy. Now, there wasn't an invention in the 50s. Are you thinking? What was it? That TV! (laughs) That black and white TV. We stopped listening to the radio and went to the TVs. My dad had plenty of money to buy a TV, but he said, I'm not buying that thing. No, 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 no. It's just a fad. I'm not doing it. So I had to watch Mickey Mouse at the neighbor's house. I found myself torn between two generations. I had one foot in the door of the 50s, the black and white door that said, accept the status quo and follow the teachings of your church and your family and your community. But then over here was the door painted in psychedelic colors that said if you go through this door, you get to color outside the lines and you can abandon the rituals and the beliefs of the tribe that I had grown up in. Well, the 60s started for me in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in 1967. History has coined that as the summer of love. We wore flowers in our hair, bell-bottom pants, and no bras. (laughs) Men grew their hair really long and wore Victorian clothing with like hats with plumes. There was free love, psychedelic drugs, and two years later, we were at Woodstock. But the rose-colored glasses that we wore were shattered when the government sent troops into Vietnam. 1965, I marched in the street with a sign that said, Make love, not war. My parents were appalled. Boys I knew flew to, flew to Canada to avoid the draft. Others carried protest signs. Hell no, we won't go. And for the first time, we watched the war on TV, up front and in our face, and it was horrific. Three boys that I went to high school with enlisted together and went to Vietnam, and they all came home in body bags. It haunts me still today. It was shocking I watched the, the assassination of President Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Megger Egvers. I watched that on TV. And I read Our Bodies, Ourselves, and I read the Cahill Gibran, The Prophet, and I witnessed the struggle of the civil rights movement starting out. Many of us in my generation got venereal diseases, and a lot of us died with a needle sticking out of our arm. Others, Went to prison for possession of one joint. Now that was shocking. When I was growing up, no one ever mentioned the word sex. It was a taboo subject. There was a short movie at school that we watched about anatomy, and then the girls had a special class that said we were gonna, with a movie that said we were gonna start bleeding when we were 12 for five days. Girls then were supposed to be virgins. So they could, in a clear conscience, walk down the aisle in that white wedding dress. My mother used to say to me, if you're not a virgin, no one's going to marry you. And I believed her. (laughs) The raciest book that I had on hand was The Scarlet Letter by Hawthorne. (laughs) But when girls got pregnant in my school, they didn't wear the A for adultery. They just disappeared. Poof, they were gone, overnight. Some girls had to get married, and then they endured the gossip. But either way, there was shame, and there was plenty of it. When I went to college, it was primarily to get a husband, an MRS degree. I majored in home economics so I could be the best stitch-and-stir queen anywhere around. And you won't even find home economics in the curriculum today. When I was 21, a naval officer proposed marriage to me. And I said, yes, because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. (laughs) And plus, I didn't want to be an old maid, which was a fate worse than death back then. In my wedding vows in the church, I promised to love, honor, and obey, forsaking myself for all others, On my honeymoon night, it was awful. It was painful. It was uncomfortable. It was scary. It was awkward. I never took off my nightgown the whole night. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, for this, I waited? (laughs) While my husband was out to sea, I taught school. And I was the envy of the entire faculty, because my students behaved themselves, and the reason was is that I said, if you get all your assignments done, and I don't have any discipline problems, if we have time at the end of class, I will answer questions and talk about sex. (laughs) The first question that was asked was, do you take birth control pills? Of course, I had to say yes, and that meant that I was reprimanded not long after that by the school board. Today... Kids learn sex education by watching pornography on the computer. Most boys have seen pornography by the time they're 11. I think that's shocking. I mean, that's... If I carried a sign today, it would say, Make love, not porn. (laughs) Or it would say, Make love, not babies. Or maybe it might say, Make love, not scars. When I was divorced... I made an about face on that monogamy issue. (laughs) I called it my period of so many men, so little time. I could trip them and beat them to the floor, I thought. (laughs) And for the first time, I had orgasms. That didn't happen when I was married. I lived after birth control and before AIDS. I lived in the best of times. In the 50s, the assumption was if you were a woman, woman, that you would become a wife, a mother, and a homemaker. Back then, a woman couldn't serve on a jury. She couldn't buy a house or get a credit card without a husband. You could aspire to be a teacher, a nurse, or a secretary, but only working until the children were born. If you were a teacher, you had to quit if you got pregnant. Getting an abortion was in a back alley. That was shocking. But the most shocking thing that happened in the 60s was the advent of the birth control pill. Yes! This reality changed everything forever. We had to play like we were engaged for a doctor at the health center to give us a pelvic exam and to issue a prescription of birth control pills. So, of course, I had the five and dime Engagement ring that all of my uh, sorority sisters and out shared, so we could get the pill. Having a pelvic exam, my legs spread apart for some man that I didn't know, was the most shocking thing that happened to me back then. With birth control pills, women had a choice for the first time of whether or not they would have children, and they could have affairs just like men. Because they didn't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. And with an education, they didn't have to depend on men financially. So they could leave an, abuse, uh, an abuse, abusive relationship, violence. And what was shocking to me is that my society at that time approved standing by your man and suffering an abusive relationship more than they approved of a woman getting a divorce. Getting a divorce was shameful. That was shocking to me. Today I'm shocked about who I've become. Shocked I'm not a wife, mother, and homemaker. The course my life has taken has been nothing like I expected. I'm shocked to remember that I was sexually abused by a Baptist deacon next door and I never told anyone. I'm shocked my husband divorced me because I, I didn't want to have children. Shocked that I felt freedom and liberation after relationships were over. Shocked that I had sex with men I wasn't married to. 50, 75, 100, I stopped counting. Shocked I never remarried. Shocked I got pregnant. Shocked I had an abortion. Shocked I became a foster parent. Shocked that today my best friend is my housekeeper. Shocked that he is a homeless man And he is the man in this world that most cares whether or not I'm happy. I'm shocked I got fired. I'm shocked I declared bankruptcy. Shocked I've traveled around the world, mostly by myself. Shocked I never found the one. Shocked that I can be lonely sometimes when I have a computer, an iPad, and a cell phone, and probably 2,500 people in my database. Shocked that I'm here today saying all this stuff that I'm saying to you. I can hear my mother saying right now, she said it a million times, you just don't air your dirty laundry out in public. <laughs> and I'm shocked that my longest lasting relationship, 16 years, was with my Vietnamese pot belly pig, who went on stage with me as a sidekick and was the inspiration for my life change to being on stage. I am shocked my parents died. I thought they would live forever. Shocked that the loss and the grief still endures. And more shocking is it seems like they just died yesterday. And that's because I'm old. I hadn't noticed. I'm going to die in the next 20 years or so. I'm in the last chapter of my life. Today I see a reflection in a in a window when I'm walking down the street, and I go, well, who's that old lady? Hi! (laughs) You, too, will get old if you're lucky. And you, too, will die. Shocking, isn't it? Just like sexuality was the taboo of the 60s, death seems to be the taboo today. And I find that shocking. When I talk to my peers about death, they think, oh, that's morbid. I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about something positive. They tell me I need to get a facelift right away because the longer you wait, the harder it is to get out the wrinkles. (laughs) And I see them become exercise nuts, raw food addicts, and they seek medical attention at the drop of the hat for anything to stave off that aging process. I hear... Well, I take care of myself, I'm going to live to be a hundred. Well, some will and some won't. My greatest nightmare is that I would live to be a fucking hundred years old. (laughs) I'm not afraid to die. What I'm afraid of is becoming irrelevant or invisible in my culture and in my society today. And I have one greater fear than that. And that is that I could be a burden to someone else in my aging process. I hear people say, I'm not going to be in a wheelchair sitting in a nursing home drooling all by myself. Well, that is exactly what's going to happen to these boomers that don't have it written down and the proper documentation of what they want. A lot of them haven't saved money for these older years. And with today's trends, 90% of people die in nursing homes or hospitals. Boomers are going to die shocked. I never saw a dead body. Have you ever seen one, a dead body? Well, let me tell you, I hadn't seen one, and I just walked in a funeral home. I I didn't know what I was going to do, like say, you know, are there any dead bodies in here I can look at? But there wasn't a soul there, so I went into this room. And there was a man laying embalmed in the casket. And you know that saying, you'll know when you know? Well, I knew that man was dead as a doornail. In my parents' day, the dead laid in state in the living room of the house. They died with their mouths open, their eyes frozen. And when they started to smell and turn black, they buried them. Everyone saw the body as it was. It was not pretty, but it was real. But today, we think maybe embalming people is more desirable. They wire your jaw shut, and they put makeup on you, and they shut your eyes. And so people can file by the casket and say, doesn't she look natural? <laughs> the cost of looking natural is that in, those embalming fluids go, they're toxic, and they go into the ground with those dead bodies. Cremation puts, up a, puts out a lot of CO2 into the air, and that's not much better. I heard a joke the other day. Someone said, cremation will be my last chance to have a smoking hot body. <laughs> my will is very specific about not being embalmed, not being put in a steel casket, and not having anything that even smacks the religion around me. It spells out what to do with my money. If there's any left, I'm hoping the last check bounces. (laughs) I've listed my friend in my health directive as the one who pulls the plug if the time comes. I know she can do it because I was with her when she had to do it for her mother. I've spared my only sibling, my brother, of that task. When I'm on my deathbed, I think I'll be present as I've never been present ever before. I want to savor every moment that I'm there. I think it's going to be exciting. So I have made preparations and I bought a um, eco-burial plot out just past the airport where I'll be buried, wrapped in a cotton sheet, deep enough so the animals don't dig me up. I don't want my body parts over there on the airport tarmac. And I want to keep it simple. I want a little rock beside my little grave that reads what I wrote. She never ran out of things to talk about. She just ran out of time. And I may be running out of time, so I'm going to move on here. But I wanted to tell you that I'm shocked today that with my education, my money, my consciousness in the world, that I am hopeless to right any wrongs, stop any atrocities, or save the environment. Stop racism. Preserve the reproductive rights for women. I used to protest, write letters. But now it all seems so big and so hopeless. I do nothing. And that's disturbing to me. Nothing people do anymore really shocks me. I'm kind of thinking maybe I'm shock immune. Maybe you've got an idea and you can see me after the talk. Try to shock me. But the truth is, I want to be shocked. But I want it to be different. I want to be shocked by real connection, lovemaking born of true intimacy, an emotion that I feel by seeing a beautiful painting or hearing some music that inspires, inspires me. Birth, new life, earth's incredible way to rejuvenate itself. I want to be shocked by sweetness, tenderness, and incredible acts of kindness and compassion. I want to be shocked by being a light for someone at the end of the tunnel. I want to be shocked by being a role model. I want to be shocked to know that, to know that something I did made a difference, no matter how small it is. I've experienced a lot in my 69 years and at certain points I have been so certain about things. But the more I know, the more I know what I don't know and I'm not so sure about much of anything anymore. Maybe I'm not self-absorbed and narcissistic after all. I hope that's true. But regardless of my age, I'm going to continue to grow and change and if you know me today, don't think you'll know me tomorrow. I will not be the same Errol and Hughes that I was yesterday. There is one thing though, I want to wake up in the morning, and I want to get out there in the world because I do not want to miss one shock opportunity, because <laughs> the truth is, I am part of this culture, and if it's not shocking, I'm not interested. Thank you. <laughs>
0: You can watch this talk and browse the complete archives at creativemornings.com. dot com. So, Eryln, do you feel like the culture today, with everything so readily available online, that maybe it seems like there's not much left to be shocked by?
2: Yes, and um, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I, um, you know, I want to be shocked. I want to be surprised. I want to. Uh, I, I want to have mystery in my life, and I want new things, but I don't want them to be harsh and violent and um, ugly all the time. Although I like to keep up, <laughs> you know, I like to know what's going on, and um, so it's a it's a kind of a catch twenty two. I don't know exactly um, how to manage the balance of the shock. I do know that um, I spoke to a group of millennial women and I was talking about some kind of harsh things going on in terms of human trafficking and she just burst out in tears because she was so present and so thrown away or or blown away I guess I should say by what she was hearing and I found out she doesn't watch TV because it it scares her, it upsets her and it and she can't stand the violence. And I was thinking, you know, there are people walking around that are not as hard as I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I have seen it and I can talk about it in a in a in a in a clear fashion, but she is affected emotionally by it because it is so shocking to her.
0: Well, I'd say that there are a lot of people not as hard as you. I think there it's a softer skin these days that old generation of get out of the house, get married, get a job has really turned into the follow your dreams and stay as long as you like.
2: Yes. Um, I'm familiar with this because my friends are having their children come back home and live with them. They have college degrees. They're certainly not uh, incapacitated mentally or physically, but they have come home to live because they can't make it financially. They're, um, they're just out there kind of winging it, and they're just not finding their place. And, you know, I think there's those three things that we all want. We want to be seen, we want to be heard, and we want a, we want a tribe. We want a, a place where we fit in. And I think those places where we fit in are becoming more difficult to find sometimes.
0: Right. Does that concern you at all about the future?
2: I I see it. And I have to go with it because in my generation, it's easy for people to say, "Oh, you know, these kids should do this and do that," and 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 pretty much put them, judge them by the standards that we had growing up, and in the '60s and the '70s and the '80s or whatever. But the bottom line is, is that you know, I ha- I have to trust this generation that's coming up. I I see a lot of things that don't fit and that are, are quirky to me and are. And I'm, I'm just going to talk about my experiences and my story and how I see the world and, and hope that uh, it, it sheds some light so that people can make this world work better for all of us. Um, because we don't say, we don't do any, any good by just cranking about the, uh, the generations that follow us. That's been done for a hundred years. They're, and we, we've always somehow managed.
0: There's always going to be people complaining about the same old things because nothing will ever live up to their glory days, you know? And there needs to be more of an acceptance of change.
2: Right. And walk away from old beliefs and old ideas that don't serve us anymore. We have to give those things up. <laughs> we have to be present and um, and be willing to, to go with the change.
0: Absolutely. So... Before I let you go, we ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast, how do you challenge yourself creatively?
1: Hmm.
2: I think I challenge myself creatively by getting up in the morning and looking at what is going to come in my path that day with excitement and open eyes and a willingness to be shocked, a willingness to change a willingness to discover something different. You know, I always kind of say that there's a Dr. Seuss quote that says, uh, be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I love that quote. Yeah. Uh, because I think we all need to be who we are and not and live our lives for who we what serves our nature and who we are rather than living the lives of other people, because that's what they think we should do.
0: It's so well said, Erilyn. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad we had a chance to speak.
2: Well, I am too. And I'm sorry for, no. there were some complications in getting it together, <laughs> but we got it done and yep. that's what happens. And that's what matters.
0: Don't worry about it at all. It was my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad it worked out.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Matthew.
0: I love that. She calls me Matthew at the end. So, hey, if you've been listening to the show and you dig what we do, please head over to the iTunes podcasting page and leave us a quick review if you can. Next week, we'll hear from Baltimore-based rapper DDM, who spoke to Creative Mornings DC on the importance of language and being true to yourself.
1: I've always been an aggressive person, but I didn't know where to channel this aggression because trying to be like DMX or trying to be like Biggie, that's not who I am. I grew up watching Jim and the Holograms. You know what I'm saying?
0: Our thanks to Inga in Brooklyn for this week's Rooster. And we would love to know what a Rooster sounds like where you're from. So please send us a voice memo of you and your best impression to podcast at creativemornings.com. Thanks to Aralyn Hughes and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to CreativeMornings.com.